1: In times like this, we at The Economist look to data more than ever to guide us in answering the big questions. My guest today, Renee Brown, loves data too. And for those of you who haven't read her best selling book, Dare to Lead, translated into 38 languages, or heard her podcast, Unlocking Us, she's a research professor at the University of Houston who spent the past two decades studying human behavior. The main finding of her 10-year-long research, including working with the US Air Force and Pixar, is that people in leadership positions need to show their own vulnerability. Well, her studies into the impact of isolation do seem particularly relevant in a COVID world of enforced lockdowns and social distancing. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking... How do we preserve mental health in the COVID era? Brene Brown, welcome. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Now, it's slightly difficult for us to pin down what you do, uh, author, best selling author, motivational speaker, researcher. I'd like to know. How you describe yourself and why you think that's more pertinent than ever, if it is, during the pandemic and during the difficult times that
0: we're undergoing on either side of the Atlantic and beyond. I would probably describe myself first and foremost as a researcher and I I would probably say research professor because that combines the fact that I'm a researcher, a social scientist with the fact that I'm a university professor and have been for over 20 years. So I think, and maybe that's, maybe it's telling because that's where I feel most at home and in my skin is alone with my data or with students.
1: You say alone with your data, but you're, I suppose you're an example of a very public use of data and a use of an attempt to be a human bridge between what can seem like the rather chilly world of data and research and findings and feelings—would that be fair?
0: Yes, and yeah, it's. I think it's really fair. And can I can I tell a quick story about that? It's it's a it's a weird story. Yeah, go right ahead. I I would have never expected this path. So what happened was twenty probably 20 years ago, when I first started studying shame, I was a young tenure track professor at the university. But it was the first time I was kind of like, you know, the independent scholar going out talking, doing qualitative interviews around shame. And every single participant I interviewed said some version of, you're going to get back with me about what you learn, right? You're gonna you're gonna help me understand what this thing is that's been stalking me for my entire life, right? And in my head, my answer was, no, I'm, I'm actually not going to get back with you. I'm going to publish this in a journal that's only read by people who are checking to see if they're attributed in it um, that you cannot access because you don't actually have that kind of clearance at the library and you'll actually never know. And I even called one of my mentors and said, I don't know what to do. I feel ethically bound to get this information back to the people that share their stories that helped me build this research. And, you know, I got a talking to um, about democratized information, about accessibility. And it was hard because it went against my training in the academy, which is basically if you're accessible, you're not that smart.
1: And that was the driver to making a more public persona for yourself or you know, to explain that bridge to me. I can understand the frustration, but I suppose you could have decided I'll stay in academia or I'll I'll go and, you know, I will practice, I will therapize, I'll put my hands on, so to speak. But, but doing both seems is is more of a stretch.
0: My PhD is in social work. Definitely we see in sociology and some of the other social sciences this new focused on democratized accessible sociology, social psychology. But at that time, this was, you know, 15 years ago, it was new. So I thought even in the most democratized way and accessible way, I could put my work out into the world and stay away, stay hidden, just push it out and stay back. And it did not turn out that way.
1: One of the things I think you set out to address was the the cause or causes of of isolation in the modern world, and you coincide with a time when the bar just got even higher. To put it loosely, how does that that feel from where you're sitting?
0: It feels scary. I mean, it feels. I think there is a mental health pandemic inside of a racial justice pandemic inside of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think we are. You know, when when I talk to mental health service workers. They're so burnt out and we just see it come. I mean, like, I don't know what the the rates are in in the UK, but we see divorce rates going through the roof. We see the newlywed separation rates higher than we've ever seen them. So people are just not making it to a year. They're just, you know, Um, I know like for me, I'll just speak anecdotally. I've been with Steve, my husband, for 30 years. This has been one of the hardest seasons of our marriage and our life. I think we are so stretched. You know, we've got toddlers crawling up our backs during conversations with our bosses. Um, You know, I feel like the only saving grace, and this is so interesting, is the antidote to shame is empathy, is knowing that you're not alone. And so the only saving grace for us right now during this pandemic is I'm talking to you right now. I just got finished going for a run because it's in the morning in Texas. So I'm sweating. I've got my hair pulled back and no makeup. And you see me and you're doing this from your home and I see your home. We're all in this together, right?
1: But listen, when back when this all began, um, March the 15th, when... We were first in in lockdown with the global pandemic. That seemed to be the week that everything sort of crystallised on both sides of the Atlantic. We began to realise what we might be in for. You spoke to your audience, and you have a big audience who follow you in in uh, YouTube and beyond. And you spoke to them directly. What did you feel you needed to say? And I wonder, looking back, whether you feel you got it right.
0: I just, I think, I looked at people and said, "Listen, this is this is a, an exercise." an unprecedented exercise in collective vulnerability. We are all afraid. We're all uncertain. We all feel emotionally exposed. And how we handle this will either, it'll either get us through it, or it'll move us back. Because when we're in this level of vulnerability and fear, Unless we're intentionally choosing courage and choosing our best selves, our default selves in fear and vulnerability is not great. We're not great in that experience. And so I think if I had to say it again, I would say the exact same thing. If I had a time travel machine and I could say it again, I would say, hey, exact same thing, P.S., half of you are going to be assholes. So if you could like get some help now and get your stuff together so, you know, you don't take that stuff out on the rest of us, that would be helpful because half of you are going to be awful.
1: You say half, I mean, you do lean on data and you're known as someone who crosses between those worlds. And yet half seems always like, uh, you know, something one might just say in
0: conversation. That's for sure. I think half is just not data-based. I think half is just, I mean, I think if I were leaning on data, I would not say asshole or half, but leaning on emotion, I would say both of those. And it's probably not half, actually. It's probably, maybe more thoughtfully, I would say 20% of you are going to go into such deep fear that you're going to cause 80% of the problems.
1: So what would that dysfunctionality, from your perspective of, of looking at this, both knowing a bit more about the, the, the way that the brain works and also the psychology of people under stress, how would that manifest itself? What would we see specific to the times of COVID-19 that would maybe illustrate what, what you've just described?
0: The politicizing uh, and demonizing of science. What we have seen is a full-on, at least in this country, a full-on assault on science, forgetting that our nation and, this, and the great democracy experiment that we are in the U.S. is built upon science and great institutions of science and learning. And I think the demonizing of science has been out of fear. I mean, it's, that is really a fear-based behavior. Um, look, we're not – people ask me all the time based on, you know, we just crossed 400,000 pieces of data early this year. Do I think people are are do I think people are inherently good for some reason people ask me this all the time, and my answer is absolutely I think they are. I think two things people are inherently good and people are incredibly dangerous when they're in fear That's human that's humanity to me
1: and how does struggling with the kind of isolation of the problems that we've seen brought about by the pandemic what behaviors do you think that magnifies and which does it maybe play down in which of our better or worse selves might it play down I, mean, I suppose we are we more or less performative for instance if we're someone who likes to dominate the room we don't maybe entirely dominate a zoom call in the same way and, and I suppose it strikes me that there might be ups and downs and whether that's borne out by your research of what it is we struggle with and what are our opportunities here
0: So you're great. It was such a complicated question. I'm teasing it out in my mind and I'm like such a bad podcaster sometimes because I'm a massive pauser. So I want to think through my, I'm going to think through this for a second.
1: You're very, very welcome to, um, to take your pauses. It can be a pause cast.
0: <laughs> I'm a pause. Oh, oh my God. That's funny. Um, when we're in fear and vulnerability, and not just some people and not just those people and not just the, the 20%. When, we're, when we are as humans in fear and vulnerability, it goes against our neurobiology to lean into that and accept it. What our neurobiology screams is control what you can, control what you can, control what you can. And that is, that is me. That is all of us. And so... What I think ends up happening is we, we reach for whatever data gives us a sense of control. And so to say, we don't know, we don't know if this is going to be six months, a year or two years, we don't know if you can get reinfected, but if anyone including political figures, give us a way. I mean, if you can, as a political leader, offer two things you can rule without question. One, certainty, even if it's not true, it doesn't matter. But if you can give people a sense of certainty and if you can give some people a someone to blame. So if you can say, you know, the Chinese virus, and this will be fine, it's not a big deal, then our human nature would say to run toward that because it literally makes us feel safer, myself included.
1: So here's an example you might find uh, interesting, Brene. In The Economist this week, we have an analysis of different strategies to control the pandemic. And I'm interested in what you would make of this from a mental health perspective, a group of scientists the Great Barrington Declaration is the sort of tag that's been hung on it, arguing that communities should isolate those at higher risk, so people over 65, roughly speaking. And the rest should pretty much continue as, as normal, taking precautions, but build herd immunity. Now, is there anything in your research that would give us an idea of the mental health implications of that way of looking at it? In a sense, it does divide society, but it divides it along lines which could seem a credible risk analysis.
0: You know what? I don't, this is where I'd be really comfortable saying, you know, I don't know. I'd have to understand it better to really, I think, contribute something valuable to that. I do know, I, I can say this. I don't know if as human beings, we stratify that way. I don't know that that's the strata that, you know, for me, I miss my parents so desperately. And so making the experience, making the decision with my husband that our kids can go back to school because they're distanced, they're masked at school, they're on kind of this weird hybrid, half the kids go and half the kids don't. But when we made that decision, because we felt it was for the best for our children, we made a decision that our family would no longer be able to be around my parents.
1: Right. So, so you had to take that trade-off, a very difficult trade-off in terms of emotions and mental health for you, for your kids and for your parents.
0: Yeah. So I don't know that. I I don't think there's a way through this that's not going to involve sacrifice in our families.
1: Okay. But let's, I mean, I'm squeezing you a little bit on this because I think what you you have such a lot of, uh, uh, it's the squeeze cast, is you you have a lot of information about, as you say, about how mental health responses to particular situations. And broadly speaking, at least the, the policy mix that is is around, and you know, it does shift, you're, you're right about that, we need to keep looking at it. But there's one view that says have short, sharper lockdowns called circuit breakers. Um, or at least that's what they're being called here in the, the UK debate, but the idea is the same. Strong interventions basically tell everyone to keep lay low as long as possible, or more complicated restrictions without a definite endpoint. Those, by definition, will have more nuance and perhaps more variability. Which do you think, and this is purely, I know you're not an epidemiologist, from a mental health perspective, which of those do you think would have the better chance of succeeding?
0: So the first thing I will have to say out loud is I would follow the science and the epidemiology and I would let that lead taking into consideration um and not not I don't I wouldn't dismiss this. I would at this point given our level of weariness 7 months in, right? I would yeah, I would choose a strategy that is the most likely to be the most sustainable. So I would pick what we think people can do, given their weariness and given their mental health needs and giving their social needs and economic needs. I think we pick what is most viable. And it's really interesting. So I'll tell you like one of the... One of the arguments I got into, Steve, because I'm a certainty seeker man. Like, if I, if I didn't, if I wasn't sitting on top of all this data, I would not be the spokesperson for vulnerability. Fifth generation Texan, hate it. I hate vulnerability. I'm a come out swinging kind of girl. Like, I just do not like it. Um, But, So I'm talking to Steve, and Steve is saying, I I think we should consider letting Charlie do this. It's outdoors. It's masked. It's social distance. And I just lost it. I was so enraged. And I said, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't understand what you're talking about. We had rules. And so in certainty, in uncertainty, I need rules. I need predictability. Tell me what they are, and I'll do it. Um, And he looked at me, and he just kind of grabbed me by the shoulders, and he said this is not a short term crisis. This is an, a, a long term pandemic, which means the calculus will always be changing. We always, you know, and so I was like, the calculus will always be changing. He said, Yes, the variables change, the cost benefit analysis changes. And so what we have to do now is what's best for our family and our community, holding in mind, weariness, mental health, Social connection, and so that was a really watershed moment for me. Um, so now I'm kind of kind of constantly thinking the calculus is going to have to keep changing, right? As we and for us again, I don't know the context fully in the UK, but you know we're going into cold and flu season. So that's going to be more complicated. We're going into, you know, and so again, the calculus is changing. So every time they offer a new program at my kids' schools and they email us and they say, but you can do anything you want. We always say, you know, here's what we're choosing unless there's a change in, and this is coming from Steve, number of cases, hospital capacity, or epidemiological knowledge,
1: It's an interesting point that you make when you you mention your husband, Steve, there and your family responses. I think people start out often with quite unified responses in families and groups and maybe colleagues as well, workplaces. And then gradually you suddenly realise that somebody just sees one thing completely differently. And I'm interested in where, you know, in this borderline of personal experience that, that you bring to your podcast, to your TED Talks before and, uh, and after COVID. How then do you decide, you, when you bring in a factor like what your other half thinks, how do you decide when you're going to do that? And how do you avoid then slightly commodifying private life, private conversations, private judgments?
0: I think if you ask the people who follow my work, what, what makes it interesting to them, a small percentage would say her research And a larger percentage would say watching her struggle with her own research. So I think what's compelling for people is not that here, you know, here are the data, here's what I'm learning. It's like, here are the data, here's what I'm learning. This is why I think it sucks. And this is why I'm never going to change what I'm doing, no matter what the data says, because it's too hard. And then people are like, yes, you know, like we get it. So I think watching me grapple is an important part of it because that's the storytelling part.
1: So what have you grappled with that was, what was the hardest?
0: I'm not ever going to meditate. I'm not ever going to do that. I, I mean, I want to, I understand, I've seen the data. It's persuasive. I am a, I am a proponent of it. Um, it makes me stabby. It makes me want to like, just lose my mind.
1: It's a bit, so You're sounding a bit like St. Augustine on chastity. You're Chastity, just not yet. <laughs> yes so there are yes. things that you think are just to be to to to
0: flesh it out there are things that you think are beneficial to mental health but you just don't want to do yeah I mean I don't want to and I try to put them into practice um you know and I think about the line that you asked me what do I share and what do I not share so I'm not I don't feel like I'm commodifying so I probably six years ago I had a really specific kind of I'd call it a CTJ in my in our family. A come to Jesus meeting, where I was like, I will share what's vulnerable. I will never share what's intimate. When people call me researcher storyteller, you know, which was, be, had became a really big thing a decade ago and has stuck. I used to hate it because I used to think, Oh my God, what are my colleagues could researcher storyteller. Um, but now I'm so proud of that moniker because we have been using stories to teach. And to communicate as a human species, you know, as a social species since the beginning of time. And so I do think I want you to teach me something, then I want you to tell me a story, because the data I'll forget, but the story I'll always remember.
1: When well, we've had guests on the show who deal, if you like, on that borderline of using people's lived experience, but also they live in, in the world where it's either part of their profession as psychotherapist or as data analyst – is Are you absolutely sure we've got this balance right and that people may not eventually turn around and say, do you know, what? I wish I hadn't shared that, that with you. I want more of my privacy back. Would you identify with that curve? Or do you think actually it's, it's rather better that we're more outspoken perhaps than our parents' generation about everything from our feelings to our doubts and sometimes to our mental health?
0: I'm 100% sure that we've got it wrong. Yes, because not all of us and not all the time, but vulnerability minus boundaries is not vulnerability. There, there is a very clear line between sharing what is vulnerable and sharing and oversharing. And I think we cross that line all the time. Uh, you know it's interesting I, I do probably ninety percent of my work in organizations working with c-suite leaders around leadership that's that's probably where I spend all my time So the definition of vulnerability is uncertainty risk, and emotional exposure and it is the birthplace of you you can't get to courage trust intimacy creativity innovation without vulnerability and so I'm trying to explain to these CEOs who are completely armored up why vulnerability is important in leadership, especially if they're trying to innovate and create. And so when I'm done, the CEO charges at the stage and kind of backs me into the corner, um, which is like introvert nightmare. Um, And I'm like, oh, God. And he said, listen, I'm going to be super vulnerable. I'm just going to sit down with our investors and my my employees. And I'm just going to say, I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do next. And we're bleeding money. What do you think? And I said, I think you don't get it, and I think you'll never get funded again. When we're going to share something vulnerable, we need to always ask ourselves first, why? What is my intention here? Like for me, I would never share anything with you, Anne, in this interview that I was hoping to get helped with, or get comments that would soothe me. I share when, my, when I have processed this thing to death, and the comments in the economist section of the internet or wherever this is going to go, don't mean anything to me. You don't share when you're dependent on people's responses. You don't share for shock and awe. You don't share because you've got a story dying to be told, and the public is the best place to do that. So I'm 100% sure we don't get it exactly.
1: You've mentioned coming from Texas. I get the feeling it's not only where you hail from, but it's very much a part of your identity and, and your persona. Perhaps you might be even emphasising you're not from those coastal metropolitan elites. Some people think uh, we all hear too much from these days. But what does it mean to you then to be from a fifth-generation Texan family? I think you've said that the family motto is lock and load. <laughs> On the, Your father was also a very Texan conservative, small-sea conservative but you're a researcher into vulnerability. You probably lived a lot more of your adult life around around those uh, much maligned or, or rightly maligned coastal elites. Do you think that gives you a particular insight into this divided America, which is obviously in our minds as we approach
0: the election, what lies beyond? I do think it gives me really, I mean, I think it gives me both um, a sense of understanding and it also is super painful you know, um, our families are divided. And I think in Texas, I mean, like, if you drive, I I split my time between Houston and Austin. If you're in Houston, we we look, you know, at least where I live, looks pretty Biden heavy. Austin, I think completely Biden heavy. But you drive between the two on the rural, people have, you know, 100 foot long banners in front of their ranches that say Trump. You know, and so I just, I understand making a last stand.
1: I'm really interested in whether the work that you do translates to other cultures. And it's something about the way that you speak so freely, your openness, your mix of data and anecdote. Uh, There's the English phrase, the stiff upper lip, not showing your feelings or uh, emotions for which were, we're, we're famed or uh, thought to be lacking, depending on who you talk to. Germans talk about having stiff ears, which is the same thing, just sounds a bit uh, less comfortable. And uh, Russian also has a phrase actually for, for a stiff upper lip, so there you are. And is there something in the openness that's very culturally American and I wonder how much you feel it translates when you go around
0: the world? Yeah, so I think the answer is the work has been translated into over 38 languages and that's that those translations happen based on demand, not based, you know, I don't make that call. Um, The publishers make that call. Um, And I do think, you know, honestly, maybe I don't always translate, but we've never, from the most remote parts of the world, we have never had someone come back and say, wow, this doesn't fit. Vulnerability isn't important, and I've never experienced shame. I mean, that's what it means to be human. And all the phrases and sayings and words that we have that we've wrapped around us from the time we were kids, the armor that we've used to self protect, it's almost universal. Cynicism, perfectionism, always having to be the knower, um, you know, those always having to be right. Blame instead of true accountability, which takes vulnerability, like those are equally as universal. And we work with a lot of multinational companies, and I think it's the proof is in the work now. There is definitely language I use every now and then where people will be like, oh, man, Brene, you use this word rumble. And, you know, and when, when when we as Swedes think about rumble, we think about West Side Story. And do I translate it as a fight or a dance? You know, and I was like, this is important. You need the Swedish word that means both a fight and a dance, a fight dance. Brene Brown, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my gosh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. And thanks for all the great work y'all are doing. I'm a I'm a fan.
1: Well, that certainly left me with a lot of food for thought. And I'd be interested to know from listeners whether Brene Brown's notion of embracing vulnerability translates practically into your own life, into your own work and relations with colleagues on those Zoom calls or when we're battling through our next round of, say, budget meetings. And will you show your vulnerable side during the pandemic you can write to us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at economist radio we'd love to hear from you for more on COVID 19 this week on babbage our sister podcast on science and technology you can hear epidemiologists on either side of the debate weighing up risks and rewards of lockdowns. You can find Babbage by searching on Economist Radio, wherever you're listening. And of course, if you like any of our shows, do give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,